HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communication, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. On this episode, Dr. Daniel Claussen wraps up our three-part series on the gene hunting project in Venezuela. And it only seemed appropriate that we conclude this series of conversations with insights on the current situation in Venezuela, what has or has not changed in the 25 years since for those HD families and communities. For that, we were honored to have Dr. Ignacio Munoz San Juan, president and founder of Factor H, join Dr. Clausen on the podcast. Factor H is a not-for-profit humanitarian foundation founded to facilitate humanitarian and medical aid to diminish the suffering of local communities affected by Huntington's disease in Latin America. Dr. Munoz San Juan is a neuroscientist working at CHDI Foundation, where he leads a large team of scientists developing therapeutics for Huntington's disease. He started Factor H in 2012, together with Dr. Claudia Perendones. So without further delay, here's Dr. Clausen's conversation with Dr. Ignacio Munoz San Juan. Great. Well, thanks uh, everyone for joining this uh, uh, podcast of HD Insights. We're continuing our uh, series of podcasts where we uh, look at some of the healthcare disparities in uh, Huntington's disease care. We've started off this series by uh, looking back at the Venezuela project, and we've heard from uh, Iris Schulson and Leon Durr about their personal experiences. We've also highlighted some of the challenges with a healthcare delivery uh, for uh, children. And now we really um, have a real treat to have uh, Ignacio Munoz San Juan join us uh, from Factor H. Uh, Ignacio, thank you for uh, agreeing to be on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So, so, so Ignacio, may, many people know you, but some people don't. Do you mind just kind of giving us a summary about uh, what you're doing? I understand you're on your. Uh, website. You, you're a neuroscientist working at CHDI, but I'm sure there's more than meets the eye. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, so I, I, so as you said, I have a PhD in neuroscience and I've been working in the field of Huntington's disease for about 12 and a half years at CHDI. I'm um, one of the two VPs in biology at CHDI and um, I'm responsible for all of the drug discovery efforts in the area of Huntington lowering, including some of the preclinical work that supported the IONIS uh, project that is now in phase three with Roche, uh, the development of the Huntington quantification assays and many other projects. Um, and, and this is really my introduction to the field of Huntington's disease. I don't have any family history of HD or any close friends uh, that were affected by HD prior to me joining CHDI. One of the first things that I 
that I initiated at CHDI when I joined in 2007 was to try to extend um, the efforts that CHDI was financing in Europe through EHDN to Latin America, given the history of the disease in, in Latin America and the fact that, you know, being from Spain, I have a lot of contacts, scientific contacts in, in, in South America. So we organized a, a set of meetings to try to establish a network of clinicians and scientists working on HD in all of South America. And in 2010, we had um, the launching meeting in, in, in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. And that's where I met um, some of the families and family representatives um, from Colombia and Venezuela and Brazil that they started talking to me about the really difficult conditions that many of the families uh, were experiencing. And um, I, like everybody else in the HD field, knew the history of Nancy Wexler and Venezuela, but really, I really had no understanding of the current situation in the community. So I decided um, to spend the following year and a half in my holidays traveling through South America. So I went to Brazil, Colombia, and Venezuela to sort of get to know the people there and uh, meet the, um, the women that were uh, managing the local uh, family associations working in these communities. And that's when pretty much everything changed for me mm. um, because I couldn't go back to my regular science job at CHDI and forget about what I have seen in many of these, uh, in many of these communities. And wow. that's how Factor H began. Wow, that that's a really powerful story. Um, can you can you for our for the listeners? Can you just tell us a little bit about some of those stories and and just paint us a picture of how compelling they were? Yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll start with um, with two parts where most of our work has been concentrated on, and that's Colombia, the Caribbean coast of uh, northern Colombia and the region of Maracaibo, uh, where uh, the Wexler team uh, worked for many, many years there. So th these two areas um, are about 150 miles apart from each other, 200 miles maybe. So they're pretty closely linked uh, geographically. Uh, it's unclear whether these are related families or not. Um, but in the, in the northern coast of Colombia, um, there is a, a pretty big town called Juan de Acosta, very close to a large city called Barranquilla. And that was considered the second largest cluster in, in the world after the clusters in, in Maracaibo. Uh, but what was unknown to everybody, including the Colombian clinicians that I knew, was that all over the countryside of that several provinces in the Caribbean coast, you would have a very high density of families living in rural areas that had never been documented, that had never seen a neurologist, uh, and that were living in incredibly impoverished conditions. Um, so the the features that I saw there were, you know, lack of access to any type of medical support, um, uh, a heavy burden of discrimination. Um, many patients ended up abandoned by their families or um, to the best that they could, they would lock them up in rooms um, for years with no visitations uh, by anybody. So they had complete social isolation. Um, there were um, 
they knew what the disease was, but they most of them had not had access to genetic testing or counseling um, because of their poverty conditions. I saw people who uh, died of starvation. And this was something that I also saw in, in, in Venezuela. And any of the type of support that you would think um, is mandatory for people with particularly late stage Huntington's like diapers, um, you know, adequate bedding, uh, all of that was, was, was absent in this community. So you, you had a, a feeling of absolute desolation for many of these families. Um, in Venezuela, which is probably the most impactful visit that I think any HD person can undertake, uh, there are two communities where the Wexler team worked on. Uh, one is a neighborhood in Maracaibo called San Francisco or San Luis. At the moment, um, you know, we, I, I've been visiting pretty much every year with the exception of this year because of COVID. I haven't been able to go back, but we have a lot of activities there. And um, in this town of about 3,000 people, uh, last, last time we checked, there were about um, 90 people affected with Huntington's disease. Um, and um, many of them are living in extreme poverty. They're wandering the streets. They don't have access to genetic testing. They have access to medications that we provide by shipping it from overseas. And now they have um, a psychiatrist who, who we hired to provide a weekly service for, for the patients. The, the uh, HDF finance Casa Ward in San Luis for many, many years, and that was providing um, excellent medical care for, for those patients. But the center has been closed for a number of years now. And even the local ambulatory clinic was closed due to the uh, financial situation in Venezuela. So um, the situation in this community is one that you find people walking around the streets all the time with very little medical support. They're all poor. Um, we try to provide um, you know, nutritional support and medications as much as we can. The last place I wanted to mention is the town of Barranquitas, which is the largest cluster in the world. It's four hours south from Maracaibo City on the lake. This is where a lot of the families contributed to the identification of the gene for many, many years. And the situation there is um, just horrific. I, I, I would always try to describe it as, imagine a leprosy colony from the Middle Ages. Mm. And that's kind of what it seems like. People living in sink homes with no furniture, no running water, no electricity, uh, about 110 degrees weather with 100% humidity. Um, people who are essentially left to die with no support, no hygienic support, no medical support. Um, lots of kids that end up being um, on their own, uh, living on the streets because either the mother dies from HD, the father leaves or both parents have HD. So the situation there is, um, is just extraordinarily difficult. I'll give you another example due to the um, situation in the country where a lot of the social infrastructure has been broken down. And you know, there's only one school for the entire village and one clinic. The clinic was raided and essentially people stole pretty much everything that they had and they have no specialists that can see people with HD. And uh, the local school uh, was also invaded and everybody took all the tables and chairs so the school has been closed as far as I know for a year and a half so none of the kids in the school in the in the town approximately you know a thousand kids can go to school 
So the situation that is really dire and really difficult. And um, uh, when, when a person becomes um, obviously manifest with either psychiatric symptoms or, or late stage symptoms, uh, there really is no uh, nearby place that you can take it. So part of what we're doing through working with the local associations is to provide uh, sort of emergency support uh, or burial services. You have to understand that more than 50% of the population of this town doesn't work. When they work, they work uh, seasonally um, uh, by fishing, uh, mostly crabs. Uh, they don't have any money, not even to pay for the burial uh, service when, when they die and for the casket. So that's something that I never expected that we had to do, but this year we paid for 12 people's um, caskets and funerals. So the, the situation that is really, uh, really terrible. Uh, I, I think in the last few years, it's been compounded by the mass exodus of uh, professionals that used to work caring for the communities, the uh, local medical geneticists and the neurologists. Um, all of them had to emigrate the country because of the sociopolitical situation in, in Venezuela. So they've been left with no one to, to really provide medical assistance to them. Yeah, just just amazing descriptions and just uh, I'm, uh, the picture in my head is 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 just uh, quite striking. I, I guess the first comment I'd make is that it seems that the infrastructure, not only healthcare infrastructure, but just infrastructure for for living, is is completely uh, decimated. Is that a fair way to to picture this? That that is correct. Yeah. So, so I guess when you go there, do you go by yourself or do you bring a team of people? No, well, it depends. Um, the, the, the way we set up, um, you know, Factor H is an organization that partners with local organizations or nonprofits. That includes family associations. So just to give you an idea, we are uh, covering the salaries of every person that works in every HD association in Venezuela so that they can do their jobs. Because with the collapse of the economy, uh, basic salaries could be $5 a month, $10 a month, and people can live off of that. So in order for them to continue their work with the communities, we, we provide for their, for their salary. Um, then what we do is we, you know, we, we define uh, joint areas for collaboration, whether it's medical, and that, that includes volunteer physicians from the local universities, uh, or we hire physicians to provide a more regular uh, uh, service. We also work with other nonprofits that manage all of the activities on the ground. So even if I go alone, I'm always with a lot of local people. And in fact, what we've always communicated is that um, Factor H is just a, a, an agent of service to them. So they don't need to know um, who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. I think what we care is to make sure that adequate help is channeled to benefit the families uh, in both towns in, 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 in Maracaibo and also in support of the Caracas National Association who, who has over 1,600 families registered with them, just to give you an idea. Oh, wow. So, so tell us what the, you know, in our clinics, we, we see a lot of... Um, challenges with just literacy of concepts like autosomal dominant and and such mm -hmm. even in our clinics you know we we have problems with communicating this do, do you see i assume you see similar issues uh with explaining huntington's disease or or um is that just kind of understood that it goes in families and yeah i mean i think the you know this these communities have seen um 
generation after generation suffering from Huntington's. And that's triggered also a lot of um, discrimination and social exclusion from those families, which is a big problem for, 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 for kids and teenagers. Um, uh, it, it's part of everyday life, uh, almost to the point where it always uh, strikes me as um, very strange to see children playing around and going in and out of houses with people dying inside or just died. Uh, that would be you know, very difficult for, for us to witness, but for them is everyday occurrence and they just don't think anything of it. Um, I, I think um, the people in St. Louis are more educated than average. So especially young people uh, and people who still remember the Wexler teams, they know about the inheritance of Huntington's and they know some basic concepts about the disease. Uh, and the symptoms, I think in Barranquitas is very different because people are really, uh, most of them don't know how to read um, and it's not a very educated uh, community uh, generally, uh, let alone about HD. They do know about the fact that it's a genetic disorder because they're so familiar with, with, uh, with the symptoms given the prevalence in those communities. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, so I guess, you know, my, my first question is, what can we do um, in, in relatively a, a rich Western you know, country where we'll spend $5,000 for a PET scan, you know, yeah. and yet people are getting $5 salaries. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you tell neurologists or psychiatrists or clinicians like myself who are being exposed to this um, um, brutal description? What do we do? Tell me what to do. Yeah, so I, I think there's different, different approaches to this. I think the first, the first thing is to say thank you for having me on and you know it, it still surprises me the the little knowledge that exists about Venezuela and about other parts in in Colombia and in Peru where you know uh, people with HD are living in, in really difficult circumstances. I, some of those circumstances have to do with poverty as much as with Huntington's but as you know they tend to be linked when Huntington's has been in a family for generations because of um, obvious reasons where people can work and, and therefore they lose their ability to, uh, to provide for their families. And generation after generation, this really uh, gets compounded and people end up living in extreme poverty. Um, so I think knowledge is the first thing and awareness that um, we benefited a lot from the contribution of these communities and um, we should know what's happening and, and maybe educate ourselves as to how we can, we can help. Um, I, you know, at Factor H, we've established a, a pretty large network of collaborating nonprofit and local institutions in Venezuela and also in Colombia. And there's a, a variety of projects that we can uh, undertake in terms of community development and in terms of providing um, you know, access to education, access to food and supplements, uh, uh, for example, we're shipping medications. So, um, uh, there are specialists in those countries who can manage the symptoms, but they need access to medication and they need, they need access to information. So um, a, an immediate thing that becomes obvious besides you know, financial support for some of the projects that we're trying to undertake is um, thinking um, uh, collectively about how we can potentially work with uh, manufacturing organizations uh, specializing in treatments for, for, for HD or neuropsychiatric symptoms to 
to establish a method to get regular medication over to those places through the systems that we've already implemented. You know, we're also trying to establish regular conferences with uh, uh, specialists and to provide a framework where we, we can take local health professionals, and I don't mean only neurologists, but, you know, nurses, um, um, rehabilitation specialists, speech specialists, nutritionists, and then send them to um, either Latin America or Spanish centers of excellence to get trained so they can go back and then they can provide adequate care, uh, information for the caregivers. Uh, there's a lot of material and, 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 and access to resources, knowledge-based resources that we can provide um, um, in, in, in maybe in a much more effective way that I've been able to do so far through, through Factor H that would benefit from, you know, having um, um, significant individuals in the HD uh, world, um, uh, scientists, clinicians, and companies to, to, take, to take on this issue and see what we can do to help. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Are, are there government barriers? I mean, we, you know, you think about Venezuela and one of the, at least in my mind, when I read about it, it seems like there's a lot of barriers to, to trusting uh, people from the United States, for instance. Yeah. Well, I, yes and no. I mean, I think there's something that's, that's happening in Venezuela as a consequence of this very issue, which is there's a lot of Venezuelans uh, after the diaspora all over the world who are very eager to collaborate with companies like, like Factor H to provide help. So the help comes from the organizations that we partner with. The help doesn't come directly from the US. Uh, so we work, for example, with an organization called Healing Venezuela out of London for the last few years. And we collect medications through, through our European colleagues and they ship it for free for us. And then the doctors down on the ground get the medications and, 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 and they provide it for the patients. And, and that comes through a network of Venezuelan organizations set up elsewhere. And the, the, there are mechanisms to, to do this. It's complicated, it's cumbersome, but it can be done and we've been doing it now for a number of years at a, at a, at a small extent. Okay. Is there a role for telehealth? Do you see that as a potential way to break down some of the physical limitations of seeing specialists? Yes, I would say yes. I think there's two aspects to the sort of the health procurement for these patients. I mean, one of them is medication. And um, in fact, we, you know, through, through a network of Latin American specialists, especially now during COVID, but for Colombia and Venezuela, if we have a um, cases that require medical attention that we can provide on the ground. We, we have um, sort of established 
for, uh, a, a way for them to speak directly with the specialists. Um, that is a bit difficult in Barranquitas because they don't have good signal. Uh, they certainly don't have computers, uh, even though they may have some smartphones, uh, a few people uh, that we work with, uh, but that becomes really difficult uh, to structure uh, so far, but it is clearly one of our goals to be able to do this more efficiently. Yeah. The, the second aspect is for people to see somebody who comes and uh, can provide uh, the not just therapeutic treatment, but also other types, types of support, particularly uh, caregiver support, um, psychiatric support for the family, uh, nutritional support, uh, exercise, and, and so forth that requires people to be there on the ground. But, 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 but yes, I think um, we would like to maybe capitalize on systems that already work well uh, and try to adapt them to the situation on the ground in these rural communities. Yeah, that's that's it's a great opportunity. Um, you know, I, I was recently talking to uh, a collaborator in Brazil, and we started talking about um, psychiatric, um, you know, recognizing psychiatric conditions and talking specifically about depression and suicide. And they were telling me that, you know, culturally, a lot of clinicians don't talk about uh, suicidal ideations because they feel like it's, you know, just not the right place for that. Can you tell us, you mentioned earlier about psychiatric issues in that community. Uh, are there barriers for, about talking about psychiatric symptoms, like mood symptoms and such like that? No, I haven't, I haven't found that. Um, in fact, I mean, through, through um, you know, and Rolex D has been um, working on some sites in, in Colombia, uh, Chile, and Argentina. I don't know if you know about this, and probably soon in Peru. And through one of the co-founders of Factor H, Claudia Perandones, who's been working on, on implementing a role HD in South America, uh, she's conducted suicidal ideation uh, uh, workshops uh, for people. So it is something that is talked about. It is something that is prevalent uh, and needed because I've certainly met uh, people who've killed themselves. Um, my experience so far has been that they engage in that conversation once they develop a, a trusting relationship with the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. and they don't have a problem with medication, at least uh, as I've seen in uh, certainly in Venezuela, where we have more experience. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we've been talking a lot about you know Venezuela and surrounding areas. What about other parts of South America that that maybe we don't think about? I I know you just mentioned Peru. Yeah. Um, similar prevalence uh, of HD there or different? Um, no, it's it's higher. I, I forget the the percentage now. Michael Hayden had a recent the most recent uh, publication with the local geneticist and neurologist in in Lima um, a few years ago, trying to map the origin of the of the mutation there. Um, there is a, a, a small province about an hour and a half south of Lima uh, called Cañete, where in theory this was the third largest um, uh, cluster in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, this is an area that is maybe 75 uh, square miles or 100 square miles, where there are several towns, small towns. And it's again, it's similar to the situation in, in northern Colombia, where you have lots of people living in in rural areas with very little access to social support and, and, and medication. The, the neurologists from, from Lima um, do come 
and I and I went with them the first time I I, I went. So we spent a couple of days going and doing uh, visits to to, to homes uh, every three months. So they provide great service in that sense. But seeing somebody once every three months doesn't really address a lot of the other other issues that they face, which have to do with poverty and have to do with discrimination and have to do with employment opportunities and so forth. So some of what factor age is a little bit different from maybe other um, efforts in the past um, is that we're interested in building or rebuilding those communities and, and trying to work locally with organizations to provide um, microloans, for example, to provide educational opportunities for kids, uh, to make sure that we build a new generation who's going to be more, more educated and hopefully have access to more resources and also try to reach local, local authorities to, to understand the dimension of the problem and try to um, try to direct some of uh, uh, local uh, government efforts to to help them. Yeah, that, that's that's really great. That's great work. Can you, just speaking of that, can you give us some uh, anecdotes of just success stories that you've seen in your work? Just when you look back and you know think about a certain uh, situation, you you say, "Gosh, this is good work. We're going the right way." Can you give us some uh, idea of some of some ways you've you've elicited change? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I would say this this two. I would, I would give you three that are maybe related. So um, when I first started going to Venezuela, there was no uh, local association in San Luis. And I don't know if you remember, but um, myself with Elena Catanio and, and uh, Charles Sabine organized the audience with the Pope in 2018. Yeah, in, uh, in, yeah, yeah. So, so part, part, part of that was triggered as a as a, as, as a consequence of a, a deep frustration not to be able to to do any work in Venezuela. So we thought that maybe the church could help and yeah. that triggered this massive event that <laughs> uh, at the beginning we weren't really expecting it. Um, but as a consequence of that and as a consequence of going down there and showing them, um, you know, the fact that the Pope was interested in meeting people, um, the community really got um, organized and they, developed, they, they started their own foundation funded by young people at risk for hd who wanted to help their own community. And I think this is the first time um, that, I, that I saw that our work triggered almost a, 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 an inside movement to try to help themselves. And, I, and I, I, that was really rewarding for me to see uh, young people organizing themselves and saying, you know, we need to do something for our community and, and, uh, and, and be really hopeful about the future. So that's, that's one. Um, one the, the other one for me that is very special besides, you know, just the gratitude of the people that we keep going back and we provide, you know, support for the families um, is um, to, to be sponsoring the children. Um, I think when you see kids that are 10 or 11 years old and their mother or father has died from Huntington's and many of them are living on the street and they have no shoes and they have one meal a day. And to be able to start a program where we now sponsor 141 children between Colombia and Venezuela and see them go back to school and wearing clothes. And we take them to the beach for the first time and we teach them about Huntington's and they have friends and they don't feel they're gonna be rejected anymore by their community. I think it's a, it's an amazing feeling. Um, probably the best thing I've ever done. So I'll, I'll end there. 
No, that's that, those are great stories. Um, I mean, is there is there a time to go back and do trips with uh, groups of medical professionals like was done previously with the yeah. Venezuela? So, so well, I, I think Venezuela is complicated for Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, in December before COVID, I was uh, going with uh, other few other people at Factor H, uh, Roger Cachope, who is a Colombian physician, and Bianca Mora, who is the executive director, and then some uh, neurologists and psychologists from Barcelona uh, who were coming with us. And, and people are asking us, they want to come and they want to organize things. And this was the first time we were going to come back um, and organize a few medical visits and uh, recreational activities. And it's our goal. You know, in fact, we've submitted a grant proposal to a pharmaceutical company working in HD to help us finance the exchange program. Uh, the exchange program involves two phases. One is, you know, working through the local, you know, um, hospitals. We're going to select a, a set of people and send them either to Barcelona or Spain and South America to get trained so they can go back. The second aspect is to organize visits by uh, medical professionals to go to the universities and to go to the field and organize workshops, see the patients and so forth. So it's not going to be a research effort because the only thing that Factor H doesn't do is research. What we do is try to provide knowledge and resources to improve their quality of life. But the ability of bringing in people for both community development and medical assistance is very much a core competency of what we're trying to set up. It's, at the moment, uh, it requires South Americans and Europeans <laughs> yeah. um, for obvious reasons. Um, but we are, we're hoping to be able to establish that program next year as soon as we can travel again. Yeah, it sounds like we need to have a HSG meeting in South America. Well, we're organizing a Factor H second um, annual conference or biannual conference. It was supposed to happen this year, but it obviously got canceled. And, uh, you know, Roche has been um, a sponsor of ours. And the idea, the idea that is to bring Latin American and, uh, and, and external scientists, clinicians, social workers, families, and so forth. So if uh, HSG is interested in either being part of it or speaking at it, we're more than happy to uh, include you once we have uh, a potential date. Uh, but, but yes, I think, I think people are very appreciative when somebody comes from the outside and people care. And I think there's a lot that together the international community can uh, can provide um, to help these these families. I'm just thinking about our our in, our interview, and I just it just struck me, you know, you really are working two full time jobs. It sounds like uh, it's quite <laughs> impressive all that you managed to do. I have a lot of help from a lot of people, so yeah, it's cool. Uh, you know, we always talk in these podcasts about people that influenced you and, and your mentors. Can you tell us a little bit about your mentors and what kind of gives you your sense of drive? So my mentors in science? Uh, yeah, in science and even with uh, this, this work with Factor H. and, and Sure. So, um, well, I, you know, in science, I, you know, like everybody has, you know, two main mentors, right? One is your PhD advisor and then your postdoc advisors. And those are both remarkable scientists and very different personalities and, and scientific styles, but uh, they both marked me in, in very different ways. I did my PhD with Jeremy Nathans at uh, Johns Hopkins, and he uh, was just an old-fashioned, very careful 
scientists, very smart, uh, would take a lot of time um, mentoring young students. So you felt very special, even though you felt very inadequate many times. And uh, he continues to be an inspiration for me in terms of the rigor of how he, how he applies to science. Um, my postdoctoral advisor is Ali Bribandu at Rockefeller. And Ali is um, it's, um, it's a, a hurricane of a person, uh, very intuitive scientifically very proactive, uh, very much about uh, making a splash, getting things out there, thinking big, being overly ambitious. And I remember when I, when I applied to his lab, when I was applying for the Helen Hay Whitney Foundation Fellowship, uh, he told me, write me a project that will, win, that, that will win you the Nobel Prize if you solved it. And that's how the way he thought about things. And I think focusing on um, rigorous detail, old-fashioned science, but big thinking, those are the two influences that I think have affected certainly my confidence level in, uh, as I grew older. And I, I still appreciate them very much. And, you know, I think the, um, the, 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 the work um, by a lot of friends that work in, in, in human rights uh, really inspired me to um, not be afraid of venturing into something completely different and for which I was very ill-prepared but rather uh, having empathy and say, if you don't try to do something, these people are not going to get any better. And uh, I started by not asking too many questions, just said, I'll do what I can. And I still continue to say the same thing. If we help one person, it's better than nothing. We help two people, it's better than one. And you know, things have been slowly evolving. We've been learning, we've made a lot of mistakes. And uh, just like science, it takes a long time and lots of different approaches in order to uh, be able to to materialize something so yeah love the website factor-h.org and uh i i i learned a lot from just looking at that website for the listeners um i would encourage you to go to that website there's if you want to donate it looks like there's a donate button um and there's ways to get in touch with um with the folks at Factor H. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, talk to you today. Thank you so much for um, for giving us your time. And I hope we can do this again. Anytime. And if you want to talk to the person, the president of the nonprofit who manages all of the work on the ground in Venezuela, her name is Marina Kaufman. Okay. Her husband is American, so she speaks English. Okay. She could be, if you wanted to get um, a, a real perspective on the ground, she could even bring some of the local people and she could translate so okay. that you get a, a, a real local perspective on the situation on the ground there. Okay. Food for thought. Great. Well, well this has been wonderful and, and powerful. And, and um, it's definitely um, brought to the forefront of my mind the, the needs for. Um, you know, just change uh, and, and trying to reduce some of these disparities of care. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. That concludes our latest episode of the HD Insights podcast. I want to thank Dr. Munoz San Juan for joining us and Dr. Clausen again for leading the special series on the Venezuela project from past to present, from the people that participated and spent time in those communities. Until next time on the HD Insights Podcast, I'm Kevin Gregory. Thank you for spending time with us. Stay safe, be well, look out for each other, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode.
We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.